again. You did hear this about a year ago from Cecil Paul. I just confirmed that. That's why I walked over and talked to him a moment ago. Uh, but the Lord, that was about a year ago. So, uh, not that I wish that you forgot what Cecil Paul said, but uh, <laughs> perhaps you can glean something new from what I say. The Lord might give me insight that he didn't give Cecil Paul, uh, new insights that you will benefit from. So, uh, we will trust that the Lord will do that. I'm sorry? Yeah, I'll water what's been planted. That's exactly. And then the Lord will provide the increase. So, I'm going to take a drink here before we... So, we're in Psalm 51. I'm covering only the first nine verses. Perhaps on another occasion I'll cover the latter portion of the psalm, but it's the first nine this time. So, let me read this again. And this time I'm going to read the superscription. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Amen. Amen. Let's pray uh, for God's blessing upon the message, and I will include these uh, two prayer requests that I failed to include earlier. Let's pray together. Lord, we do lift up to you uh, two other uh, people who need your healing touch. We pray for Barbara Corbett uh, as she continues to battle uh, the cancer in her body. We ask that you would give wisdom to those who are treating her and that you would use uh, means, uh, be they modern medicine, uh, homeopathic, whatever, or no means at all to heal uh, our sister, Barbara. But Lord, we pray that you would help her to trust you, that you would help her to keep her eyes on you. We pray the same for Lee uh, Milky, who has lymphoma, uh, and has had it for quite a while now. We pray that uh, the treatments that she is receiving, that have uh, her recent treatments have been very helpful. We pray that these further treatments would also be helpful and would be re- result in the elimination of this lymphoma cancer from her body. We help. We ask that you would help her to trust you.
And Lord, now we, as we turn to our message, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, it is, it is all just, uh, um, human wisdom and nonsense if you are not in the preaching. So would you please uh, be the preacher, Lord Jesus? Would you please grant me divine unction, your unction, uh, ability to do what I cannot do by myself? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Children, um, have you ever... Well, first of all, let me say this. <clears throat> Y'all, you, you children know that you're sinners, right? If you know you're a sinner... Would you please look up at Pastor Mark and nod your head? Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you all know that? Pastor Mark's a sinner. He's been a sinner for a long time. Uh, actually, since I was in my mother's tummy. But you are too. We are all sinners. Even those of us who are Christians, we're forgiven of our sin, but we're still sinners. Uh, and as a result of being sinners, even if we're Christian sinners... Uh, we, as Christians, uh, even though we know we're not supposed to, we fall into doing things that are wrong. You children have sinned this week against God. Pastor Mark has sinned against God. Your parents have sinned against God. I am confident they've all done it this week. Um, we all sin. And maybe you have done something in your short life um, that was really bad that you knew was really, really bad. It was a what you would call a terrible sin. And you did it to somebody else. Maybe it was your brother or your sister. Maybe you slugged your brother or your sister. Maybe even, even in the face or something like that, which is a really bad sin, by the way. Maybe you lied to your mom or your dad about something and realized it was a big, fat lie. Maybe you um, said, a, said something that was just really unkind to, maybe it was your brother or your sister. Oftentimes it is brothers and sisters, sadly. But you, maybe you did something, and, and maybe you didn't, but if you didn't, imagine doing this, or maybe you did on an earlier occasion, where you've done something to another person that you didn't think that person would ever forgive you of. Pastor Mark did something. I'm not going to go into the details, but I did something uh, that uh, was highly offensive to my parents when I was a teenager. Really bad thing. And I didn't think my parents could forgive me. They did. Praise the Lord. But um, sometimes we sin in ways that are um, really bad. So maybe you've done that. Maybe you've sinned sometime where it was a sin against God. Now, it may have been that same sin where you sinned against another person and you also were obviously, whenever you sin against another person or do something evil to another person, you're sinning against God. But maybe it wasn't that sin. Maybe it wasn't that evil deed that you just thought about a moment ago when I was asking you to think of having hurt somebody or done something really bad to another person. Maybe it was a sin that nobody knew about, 
but you knew God knew about. And you realized it was a terrible sin. Maybe you thought to yourself, I don't think God can forgive me of that sin. You ever thought thoughts like that? It's a bad place to be. You don't want to be there. But it's not true that God can't forgive you for a really bad sin. This text, this psalm makes that point really well. So you need to listen because you're going to, someday you're going to do something that you're just like, wow, I can't believe I just did that. Even as a Christian, you'll do something really bad that you just wonder, can God forgive me for that? The answer is yes. Um, I read the superscription at the beginning, which we don't have the promise that superscriptions are divinely uh, uh, inspired. Some of them are because some of them are repeated in the New Testament, which means at that point, the New Testament writer, who's the Holy Spirit, of course, is saying that was inspired. Um, But we know that this superscription is almost certainly inspired in terms of the background. And even if it's not inspired, the superscriptions are almost always uh, accurate um, uh, representations of the background of the psalm. And this one certainly accurately reflects the content of the psalm and what happened when when David sinned. Um, And this dark and shameful event that prompted uh, David to write this psalm is there, right there in the superscription. A psalm of David when Nathan, the prophet, came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Y'all, I think... Probably all of you are familiar, even the children are familiar with what this episode in David's life. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, uh, another man's wife. And later on, after discovering that she was pregnant with his child, uh, David arranged to have Uriah uh, killed in battle. He murdered Uriah, in effect to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. It's important to recognize right now at the front of this sermon that the sins of adultery and uh, murder, both of which David committed on this occasion, those two sins are sins for which the law of Moses provided no forgiveness. None. Uh, for deliberate, intentional taking of another person's life, or for adultery, which is always intentional. Death was the required, demanded, and inevitable punishment. You died. That was it. You died. It was discovered and you were gone. You parted this world under a pile of stones that were thrown at you. And David knew that. He knew that before God, there could be no forgiveness through any sacrifice which he might offer under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. There were no gifts, there were no animals that he could offer up, there was no nothing he could do that was provided in the law of Moses that would allow him to receive God's 
forgiveness. In fact, he deserved to die, and he knew it. As far as the law of Moses was concerned, he had committed two unpardonable sins. And there was only one way back to God, and it wasn't through the law. David knew it. It was through the promises of God in the gospel. The promise of a Messiah who hadn't yet come, but who had been promised repeatedly to the Israelites, to the patriarchs, and to David. And this psalm speaks of the wonderful deliverance that that Messiah would provide to sinners. Like David. Two, three, excuse me, three points that I'm going to make from this passage. Sorry for being so emotional today, by the way. It just happens sometimes up here. Um, first, because Jesus shed his blood for you, you can come before God in spite of your sins, regardless of what they are. Because Jesus shed his blood for you. Secondly, because Jesus shed his blood for you, you can acknowledge to God the full extent or the, or the full uh, gravity of your sins. And thirdly, because Jesus shed his blood for you, you can look to God for cleansing from the guilt of your sins. We're going to unpack that in the next few minutes, those three points. First, because Jesus shed his blood for you, the Messiah whom, to whom David was looking on this occasion, you can come before God in spite of the gravity and the ugliness of your sins. David, the sins that David committed are amongst the most heinous that a man can commit, arguably, or a woman. Yet he still comes before God in prayer. He still approaches God. Kind of presumptuous, don't you think? After what he's done? Slept with a man's wife and then taken the man's life. And yet he comes before God. You know, there are times when the sin, you know rather, there are times when the sin that you have committed uh, is particularly vile in the sight of God. Either because of its very nature or because of its frequency. Sometimes the sin isn't so obviously gross, but it's one that we you fall into just over and over and over and over again, and just don't just don't seem to have any progress in in putting to death, and and then it becomes by its frequency just this stench in your mind. Rightly so, I would say. Think back, if you would. I'm sorry to make you do this, but you need to do it. Think back to times when you have committed such a sin. When you, when the realization of what you did finally began to sink in, what was the first thing you wanted to do? You wanted to run, I bet, from God, right? You wanted to run and hide in your shame just the way Adam and Eve did in the garden after what they did to God. You were probably filled with horror at the thought of what 
you had done and of how it, how much it had offended an infinitely holy and just God. And you probably couldn't imagine at that point in time or had trouble imagining how he could ever forgive you for what you did. And if you haven't had one of those moments, you're not thinking hard enough, I suggest. Running and hiding is the first thing we want to do uh, and the very last thing that we should do at times like that. You may, God forbid, have another one of those times in your future. Don't run from God. Follow David's example and go to God and own up to your your sin. David approaches God in prayer and he approaches God on the basis of an appeal to God's mercy. Right there in the first verse. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. That loving kindness is that word that you hear me say all the time in Hebrew. Uh, it's that word that means covenant uh, loyalty or covenant commitment or covenant uh, faithfulness that's based on the covenant and it's God's. Uh, that's God's faithfulness, his loyalty, his, um, his commitment that's grounded in the covenant of grace. And that is that word there. And so he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindnesses, or thy loving kindness, rather, according to the greatness of thy compassion, which is not exactly a synonym, but is a related term. Um, it's more the idea of mercy uh, there. Uh, for, for one who is afflicted, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. And it too is covenantally based. And David approaches God on the basis of the covenant of grace that was first articulated to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, later to reaffirmed to Noah, then reaffirmed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and was also spoken to him earlier on in his life, prior to this point in time, by the way, at the giving of the Davidic uh, administration of the covenant of grace. David approaches God on the basis of God's covenant mercy, and there is no other way to approach God. Now, when you're doing well spiritually, and there's no sin, unconfessed sin in your life, and the next time you do something that you just are so ashamed of you can't even think straight. you got to approach God on the basis of his covenant mercy. And David had to do that. He certainly couldn't come to God, nor can we on the basis of his justice, right? What does justice call for? It strikes fear. It should strike terror into the heart of any sinner whose conscience still works. The thought of justice is horrifying. Causes us to want to ask the rocks to fall down upon us. I just read that passage in Revelation recently. Nor can we come to God. Not only do we must we not is it not wise to come to Him pleading for His justice, but um, although there is a way in which that can be done through Christ, knowing that Christ receives our justice in our place, that's just of God to do that. But that's another. That's an aside. Anyway. We can't come to God either on the basis principally of his wisdom. His 
knowledge, his power, his omnipresence. Because all those things, you see, imply that God sees our sin, that God knows our sin, that he has the power uh, to inflict eternal punishment and infinite punishment on us for our sin. Can't go to him on the basis of his power after you've done one of those wicked, horrible, uh, hell-deserving, which every sin is hell-deserving, but particularly, obviously, hell-deserving sins that you or I commit, like David did. No. The only reason we dare come to God and dare hope for the possibility of being reconciled to God is God's covenant mercy. His grace. David knew this. Which is why he clings so fiercely to God's mercy. Starts out his prayer. Be gracious. First word. I need grace. Be gracious. You too can come before God in spite of some horrible sin that you might commit or have committed in the past and plead his grace. And it will be there for you if you're in Christ. Not only can you come before God in spite of the gravity of your sins because Jesus shed his blood for you, but secondly, because Jesus shed his blood for you. You can acknowledge to God the full gravity, the full grossness of what you've done. Again, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to the greatness, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. And then he goes on, all the way through verse 6. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He mentioned transgressions in verse 1. For I know my transgressions, there it is again, and my sin is ever before thee. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You get the theme here? Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost part, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me know wisdom. David confesses, Uh, repeatedly, his painful awareness of his sin before a holy God who is a consuming fire, who consumes sinners who are unprotected from his justice. And David says, Lord, it's gross. He uses the word transgression. It's the idea of crossing a forbidden boundary as an act of rebellion against the one who's established that boundary. He says, Lord, I've committed transgression. I've crossed the the moral uh, boundary that you said I must not cross, and I've crossed it. And I'm essentially at war with you because of it. He uses the word iniquity, which is refers to the innate depravity of fallen man. That's, that's, he's conceived and born with, that comes from Adam, and that yields all its, all its gross results throughout our life. And then he uses the word sin. Sin is, means missing the mark. You've perhaps heard that before. David has fallen short of God's moral perfection that God demands in the same way that an arrow falls short of its target. And that's often, you've heard that, I'm sure, that illustration. And it's a good one. 
it defines what sin is, but it's, it's missing the mark of God's law. Remember, John defines sin as lawlessness. Missing the mark of God's, what God demands, morally speaking, from us. And David acknowledges this and says, I've done all these things, God. It's horrible, isn't it? David indicates then his realization uh, of who it is against whom he has done this, perpetrated this crime, this spirit, multiple spiritual crimes. He says in verse 4, Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and in other words, pronounce my guilt, and blameless when you judge me, when you cast me into prison, if you were to do that, into, into hell if you were to do that. You're, you know, you're totally within your rights to do that because I've sinned against you, he says. We too, excuse me, lost my place here. By itself, let me say more about sin. By itself, a wrong committed against another human being, with respect to that human being now, that wrong is merely improper I'll say, I'll use the word arguably, is only improper treatment of that person, but not a sin in the technical sense of the term. Now, it is a sin, don't get me wrong. But with respect to the other person, it's really just treating that person poorly. Because, the reason I say that is because sin by its very nature, as this verse makes eloquently makes this point in verse 4, is against God. Only, actually. There's a sense in which sin is only against God. We're just abusing other people, and of course we're sinning against God when we do that, but, but in terms of my relation, relation to, the, to the person whom I'm lying to, or whom I'm hurting, or whatever, I'm just mistreating them. But it's not in and of itself, except with the Godward dimension, a sin. But it is obviously a sin, because God says we're not to treat people like that. But it's only in relation to God's law that sin is defined as sin. Sin is lawlessness. And we need to come to the same realization. I have sinned against you, God. Yes, it might have that uh, other person in my life, that parent, uh, that brother or sister, that child, that colleague, that neighbor, uh, that person at church that I spoke ill of or said, you know, or got angry at inappropriately or wasn't willing to forgive, you know, and told him I hate you, you know, yes, that person was collateral damage, but you're the one I've sinned against. We got to have the same attitude, folks. We got to understand that it's God who's most offended. David knew that. Again, he's he's just he's just he's just letting it all hang out. He acknowledges the extent of his sinfulness there in verse five. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He confesses that there was never a moment in his existence when he wasn't a sinner. Nine months before he took his first breath, he was a sinner. God, I've been doing this against you all my life. Ever since I've existed, I've, I've offended you in different things that I have done and said and thought. Now, 
I'm not suggesting that we should spend all our time as Christians navel-gazing and going, oh, woe is me, wretched man that I am. But we need to do some time doing that. Especially when we have offended God in a particularly egregious way. We need to uh, stew, uh, marinate in the evil that we've done a little bit. David did that on this occasion, verse 5. Reminded himself of the extent of his depravity and, and, the, and, and he did it. And by the way, this is the value of it. Is not, you know, to beat ourselves up so much, but to humble us before God. To get us in the proper frame of mind. So we can look up and go, not treat God like, you know, God, would you mind forgiving me? But, uh, oh God, wretched man that I am. And then he acknowledges in verse 6, not only the extent of his sinfulness and his realization against the, of who it is he sinned against and the gravity of his sin, but he acknowledges God's desire for inward purity in him that he now lacks as he's praying this prayer. Behold, thou desirest, thou dost desire truth in the inmost being. Something that prior to this prayer, you know, David was not exhibiting at all. And in the hidden part, thou wilt make me know wisdom. He's aware that the Lord's going to bring him back. I think that's uh, in, uh, implied there in that uh, in that statement. That Lord, you're going to you're going to make me um, desire truth once again. Live truthfully. Live honestly. Which I've not been doing. And by the way, that. Also, he's reminding himself of what God expects of him and what he is not has not delivered. That God expects purity, not just by the way, and notice in the verse, it's not just outward compliance with God's law. It's inward compliance that God wants from him and wants from you and me. So, We've seen that because God, because Jesus shed his blood for you, you can come before God in spite of your sins and their gravity. Secondly, because Jesus shed his blood for you, you can acknowledge the full extent, the full grossness of what you've done, the evil of what you've done, and be honest with God about that, in spite of the fact that he's blindingly holy. And then thirdly, uh, you can, uh, because Jesus shed his blood for you, you can look to God for cleansing, actual cleansing from the guilt of your sins and restoration of that relationship with God that was so damaged by your uh, evil behavior. You can look to God for cleansing from your sins. We see this um, in verse 2 and verses 7 through 9 as well. David asks God, to wash away the stain of his sins. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me 
from my sin. Skipping down to verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out my all my iniquities. In other words, blot them out from your memory is his point. So that you, God, don't think about them anymore. David longed for the moral stain of his wickedness to be completely removed. And there was no stain tougher to remove than those that he had. God alone could remove those moral stains from his heart that so offended God and so offended David at this point. He wanted to be washed in the same way that Isaiah describes over in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, that well-known passage. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Isaiah 1, 18. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be they will be whiter, as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And of course, wool is white. White merely a, uh, <clears throat> a metaphor for moral cleanness, moral purity, uh, moral blamelessness. And David wanted that so badly. And he knew he didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. But David also understood that though he didn't deserve it, he was speaking to a gracious God. And he understood that though the law of Moses in its severity provided no opportunity for forgiveness, the shedding of the blood of the future Messiah who is yet to come could bring that cleansing to him in his day. When he says in verse 7, hold on, i got to find it, I lost my place. When he says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean, hyssop is significant here. Hyssop was a small bush-like plant that was used to sprinkle the blood of sacrificed animals on people in the Old Testament period. It was used, hyssop was, by Moses on the Israelites when the Mosaic Covenant was ratified at the foot of Mount Sinai. Blood was shed, hyssop was dipped in the blood, and it was shed, I believe, on the elders representing all the people who were standing in front of Moses. The blood of the sacrifice was being applied with hyssop. It was uh, used on a person who had been cleansed of an infectious skin disease. I, can't, I, don't, I don't have the reference down there, but uh, it was. I promise you, you can find it in the, in the law. Uh, and it was used to cleanse a person who had been defiled, had defiled him or herself by touching a dead body. Hyssop was to be used to bring about their cleansing with blood. You see where I'm going here, right? When David asked God to cleanse him with hyssop, he meant 
Cleanse me with the blood of the covenant. And the blood of the covenant mediator, who is merely pictured in these animals that I've been offering up to you, but who is the anointed one. Who I know is coming. The the, the, uh, Davidic covenant was pointing smack dab at Jesus. A thousand years before Jesus was born. And David knew that. Didn't know his name was Jesus of Nazareth, but he it was the Messiah, it was the, it was the Christ. And he knew, that's my only hope. The Lamb, the Lamb of God, who would in fact take away my sins, or will in fact take away my sins, speaking as if I were David here, and, and does now take away my sins, in spite of the fact that he hasn't been born into time and space yet but is going to be one of my descendants. God's anointed. The Lamb of God. This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. Forgiveness from the Lamb of God. Through the gracious covenant that God first articulated in the garden just after the fall and brought to fruition on the cross. For all those who would flee to Christ alone for their salvation. Are you trusting in this Jesus that I've been talking about and the Bible speaks of, who is God? He's God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, but he's also Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, who had to be both God and man in order to save you and me, and is now reigning in glory as the glorified uh, Savior of sinners and the King of the world. Do you believe in that? Are you trusting in that Jesus? Because if you aren't, you're careening headlong toward hell right now. If you're listening to me out there uh, in cyberspace. You're going to hell if you don't have this Jesus that I'm talking about. You're on the way to hell. I'm, I don't know if you're going to get there. Hopefully you'll listen to this message and trust in Christ. But if you don't, and you take your last breath and you don't have this Jesus, you're going to burn for eternity in hell. And I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but that's the truth. And the gospel means nothing if hell isn't real. It is real. And you're going there if you don't have Christ. All of us will. Do you have that Jesus? Are you trusting children in that Jesus I'm talking about? Because you're sinners too. You've offended God too by your sin. And you need to be trusting in Jesus. And you will have forgiveness from God. And you will be right with God, but only if you have Jesus. Trust Him today if you haven't done that, children. And of course you adults too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. For Jesus. We thank you for Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Why you would bother. Thank you for bothering. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. For being our lamb. For covering our sins from your sight and the Father's sight and the Spirit's sight, for reconciling us to you. Lord, if there's anyone listening who doesn't know you savingly, have mercy. 
That's the only way that person will not experience your judgment and your justice and your wrath. Have mercy upon such a one. If it's a child, if it's an adult, if it's an elder, if <laughs> whoever is listening, if there's anyone unconverted, have mercy. Please. That mercy that David pleaded for in verse 1. And for the rest of us, Lord, please help us to live a life of genuine gratitude and love for you and what you've done for us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Supper is one of two holy sacraments that Jesus himself instituted uh, that the church was to observe uh, following his ascension for, well, throughout the whole New Testament age. The other one, of course, is baptism. Record of the Lord's Supper is found in a number of places, one of which is Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. I'll read that to you. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, we believe the scriptures teach that the uh, these two holy ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Um, that is first and foremost what they are. They're a picture of the covenant. Uh, and they sign or signify uh, through symbology, uh, sim- Symbolism, there we go. Wow, I made a new word. Um, through symbolism, um, the, uh, the covenant's um, ratification through the covenant mediator and what he accomplished in life and uh, death uh, and, and subsequent rex- resurrection, his atoning work. Uh, it pictures the, uh, as I break the bread, that points to the breaking of Jesus' body. And uh, the wine, of course, signifies uh, his shed blood, his lifeblood, uh, representing his life. But it is more than mere symbolism. We believe the scriptures teach it is also uh, God is saying something uh, through Jesus in particular, because he's the host of this meal, is saying something to us, his people. Um, and uh, that, in that sense, it's a seal of God's promises. Uh, and God has made promises in the in the gospel, in the covenant, you could uh, almost equate those two terms in some sense. Uh, he's made promises to us, and he's affirming, he's reaffirming to those who participate uh, rightly, uh, by faith, trusting in Christ alone, uh, that God's promises made to you in the gospel are certain, and you can uh, take them to the bank, so to speak. Uh, you have God's forgiveness, you have God's love, you have his gracious presence in your life, you have his leading uh, in your life, and he will bring you safely home to glory one day. And promises like that and others uh, in the gospel are God is, Christ is saying, um, 
I want you to know I'm going to keep those for you. Um, this meal is a sign and a seal. It is to be observed uh, in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, in particular of himself paying the penalty for our sins that we ourselves deserve, taking hell, in other words, for us. By partaking of the meal, you and I are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again to those around us, to ourselves, and to the Lord himself. It is, great, it is of great benefit to those who partake of it rightly. You have to partake by faith, consciously trusting and depending upon Jesus alone for your salvation, your right standing before God, your reconciliation with God. It's only through Christ that you get it, and you must not take this meal, uh, participate in it if you don't believe that and aren't trusting solely in that Jesus, um, even as you take. It is a means of uh, grace to those who partake of it rightly. Um, the uh, Holy Spirit uses this to bless those of us who are his people. And yes, he can bring people to faith through the, the visible gospel, which is what this is, uh, too, in that sense. It can be a means of, to save somebody. But uh, uh, it's, we need to be a little bit careful about how we use those, that language. But the point is it's a means of grace. And, uh, and it is for God's people to be blessed, uh, to be comforted, to be spurned on to greater obedience, to renew their commitment to Christ, to increase our ability to trust him and uh, have greater ability to resist temptation, things of that nature. Presumably the Holy Spirit can use this to bless us uh, with. Um, the meal is not for anybody but those who know, to be, know themselves to be Christians, um, you need to be a Christian. You need to know that you are a Christian. You need to be a baptized member in good standing of either this church or some other church that believes as we do that Jesus is the only way to God and it's only by trusting in Jesus that you are pardoned of your sin and reconciled to God. Uh, you need to be a member of such a church because that indicates uh, to us that even though we didn't interview you and hear your profession of faith that some church has and your baptism proves that to us. Um, this is not for perfect people. Um, you'd be in heaven if you were such a one. You are not. You're here. I am too. Uh, this is for imperfect people. Um, if you are playing games with God, you call yourself a sinner, a Christian rather, but you are clinging to some sin, don't come. God will not be pleased. You'll offend him more than you already are, you need to use this time as an opportunity to ask God to forgive you for your hardness of heart and maybe to become a Christian because if you're, if you're resisting obeying God in some area, you're clinging to some sin, you may not be a Christian. You might be, but you may not be. You need to stay away from the meal and use this time to ask God to help you uh, get right with him. If you are clinging to sin, you must not come, but if you are Struggling with sin, you must come. If you want to be rid of the sin that you are have exhibited this past week, that you confessed a little while ago, but you're struggling to put that sin off and not maybe hadn't had much success this past week, should we say? Maybe it was a, 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 a two steps forward, three steps back week for you. Even you you need to come. You need what this meal um, what this meal right, proper partaking of this sacrament can bring to you through the Holy Spirit blessing the sacrament. Um, 
Yeah, so you need to be a Christian and you need not be clinging to sin. Let's uh, now pray and ask the Lord would bless our participation in this meal. Lord, we do ask that you would help us as we uh, partake. Would you please be with us? Would you please use uh, these uh, elements, uh, set them aside from their everyday common use under the holy purposes for which we are about to use them. We know there's nothing magical in the Lord, but we ask that as we use and consume uh, these elements that uh, you would help us to cling in faith to you, Lord Jesus, afresh uh, in a more intense way. Uh, and as we do so, would you please, uh, for your for your glory, would you please bless us and make us more like yourself uh, through this meal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he uh, broke it and he gave it to his disciples, as I, as I now give this bread to you. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please uh, take a hold of the element and hold it until we are all served, and then we'll eat together and likewise with the wine. The body of Christ was shed for you. Take and eat. same manner he also took the cup and having given thanks as we've already done he gave it to his disciples saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins drink from it
all of you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, how we rejoice in your kindness shown to us in coming to be our lamb our substitute um, in taking to your divine person our humanity so that you became a fully man and therefore could represent us um, uh, in your life, death, and resurrection and, and that you remain fully God so that you can endure infinite punishment, absorb infinite wrath that we ourselves deserved and only God can do that and you did that. How grateful we are that you would give yourself, uh, as evidenced by the blood that um, that the wine resembles. Uh, we thank you that you care so much for peop- uh, sinners like us, and we ask that you would help us to live in a manner that becomes our profession to be your followers and your servants. Lord, it's so easy to wander back into our old ways, to think like the world, to act like the world, to speak like the world. Um, Please help us not to do that. 
Please help us to honor you in the way we, not just outwardly, the way we conform our outward lives that other people usually see, but would you please help us to conform our hearts uh, to your will and uh, that we would love you and serve you from the heart this week. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.